It's called mass mortality when lots of birds die. Let's hope we never see it and only see them fly high. Thank you for tuning into Hannah and Eric Go Birding, a podcast by birders for birders. I'm Hannah and he's Eric. And we created this podcast to share adventures, sometimes misadventures, and opinions that we have about different birding topics. We are definitely not experts, and anything that we discuss that might be controversial, we want you to remember, they're our own opinions, and they might be different from yours. I know I said our names, but if you hear some scratching in the background, that's our cat, Cousteau. <laughs> Seriously. And all, all throughout the interview for this episode, and it was... <laughs> they need so much attention. But you, only you... when we're recording. That's the only time. Either that or when we're trying to sleep. Those are, that's the only time. You, you try to pet them during the day, it doesn't matter. They just, they don't care, they walk away. Is that how you feel, but Rosie? when we're recording or when we're trying to sleep. Yeah. Is that how you feel, buddy? Okay, I'm sorry. Anyways. Cats. We have to. So this this week, we are having some crazy weather, but last week we had some pretty normal weather and some pretty exciting birds. Um, Except this weather. Didn't you see the, the WhatsApp thing mm-hmm. from David? No, I don't like, want to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that over the weekend, we're supposed to have some, like, or we're, we might potentially have some really good birds pop yeah, up. Yeah, the, the wind is... The wind is going to be shifting from, it's going south, it's coming from the south right now with the storm, and then it's going to be shifting, coming basically straight out of the west, so it's going to blow the pelagic birds and other things that are trying to migrate over the water, over land, so... So we might get our might, Oregon northern fulmer. Maybe. We might, we might get a Clatsop County northern fulmer, and all sorts of other albatross and stuff, maybe. I don't, that would be I don't crazy. Know. We'll see. It's... Who knows what the, what's going to go on. The wind is whipping pretty good right now, but it's, like I said, it's coming out of the south, so nothing nothing to blow anything in yet. But we'll see. When it shifts, maybe. Yeah. But, yeah, so this just kicked up yesterday. Um, but the last, like, week or so, we've had some really unusual birds pop up in our um, little area right here. Yeah, I'm sure it probably has something to do with the smoke and the fires and stuff like that. Some of the birds. There was a yellow-headed blackbird out here in Clatsop County. Um, right on the, right, basically, right. basically right at the ocean. Like, yeah. I mean, so it was, it was right above salt water from the ocean. So it's about as far west as it can get. It was wild. Yeah. And then, uh, a Sabine's goal showed up too. Are you sure it wasn't a Sabin's goal? I, we've, we've talked about pronunciation. Potato, I, potato. Yeah. It's, if there's a town of Sabine and, uh, or Sabine's Pass in Texas, and then people say Sabin's goal sometimes. So it's I, like Laz- I don't know, <laughs> but it's like Lazuli and Lazuli. Like, who really cares? Yeah, it's if you know what I'm talking about. It's the pelagic gull. They're really yellow, pretty. Yellow tip to the bill, like black Stark and white coloration yeah. contrast. Pretty, pretty awesome looking gull. Um, it was an immature that was hanging out here, um, right next to the right next to the beach, um, for one day. That's basically all they hung out for. And then a snow goose too. A two is like a month and a half early for a snow goose here in Clatsop County. So. All three within three days of each other. So yeah. So. Last week that was that was super exciting. This last weekend, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, and we were fortunate that Jeremy from backyard the backyard birding game we interviewed like year year and a half ago. Yeah. About their card game that they developed, he and his wife came and stayed with us for a couple of days, and they were actually the ones who found the yellow headed blackbird. Oh yeah, they they found it, and um, he he texted me, and he's like, hey. I got, I got, I think I got a really exciting bird. And he sent me a picture of it and I'm like, uh, I need to finish what I'm doing right now. <laughs> and so Hannah and I, uh, finished what we were doing, cleaning, cleaning at the, um, hotel and then raced down there to go see it. So that was pretty cool. 
Yeah, like so less than a mile away. <laughs> well, and it's getting to be that time of year where you know a lot of juvenile birds are migrating, mm-hmm. and they don't necessarily like know where they're going because you know it's easy to get thrown off a migration that you've never done before. Yeah, get you get hooked up with the the wrong crowd of red winged blackbirds and end up in the wrong spot. <laughs> get a tattoo. Yeah, yeah get, get get a tattoo so you, you remember your child. <laughs> you remember your whole rebellious age. So, anyways, you might uh, be spotting some weird birds in your area too. So, um, our last episode that we did, we had some top listenership cities. Um, first, it was tied with Atlanta, Georgia, and Blackheath, England. Mm-hmm. So, you know, across the pond, they're listening to us. They're listening to us there, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the town that came in second, which I feel like this is this is a trick question. It's Gravesend, New York. I almost said New York wrong. <laughs> New York. New, New York was the hard word on that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you all for listening to us and uh, and yeah, tuning in and getting all your friends to tune in too. Yeah, so I think this week we'll we'll just jump straight into uh, what we're here to talk about. There's not much other not much else going on in the news, right? Well, so this all sparked because of a news story. Yes. Um, so, so I, I guess, guess the whole episode's news. <laughs> so I guess we'll preface it with that. So recently there was a bird die-off in uh, New Mexico mm-hmm. that just, oh my gosh, the news about it, like, just went all over the country. Like, I had non-birder friends that were, like, you know, posting about it. It's just like when there's a yellow cardinal or, like, something <laughs> like that. Non-birders are suddenly... Like, very interesting, because it's something that's crazy. It's something that's, you, you don't see this sort of thing all the time. This one is not positive. Um, so, you know, there was a bird die-off that happened in New Mexico, mm-hmm. and Eric will post it in the show notes. Um, but then, you know, my mom, every single time a die-off occurs, she, like, messages me, and she's like, oh, why is this happening? What's going on? And just panics about <laughs> it. And so we thought we'd get in touch with the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and see what they know about bird die-offs and how they can help educate us so we don't necessarily need to panic every time we see one occurring. Or if we do need to panic, I guess they're going to let us know which way we should go. (laughs) We were able to get Scott, um, who's the Chief of Migratory Birds for the Southwest Region of the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, to sit down and tell us more about why die-offs happen, about this specific case, and if there's anything we can do to um, help prevent it or yeah. what what we can do. So we're not just sitting here feeling helpless. R- r- wringing our hands all concerned because there's not, we don't know. Yeah. So here's our conversation with Scott about mass mortality events. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for this episode of Hannah and Eric Birding. Please tell us about yourself and what you do and the whole story. Yeah, hi. Thanks for inviting me. My name is Scott Carlton. I'm the Chief of Migratory Birds for the Southwestern United States. That encompasses Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, uh, and Arizona. And um, I'm an avid uh, outdoorsman. I would never, I don't classify myself as a birder, um, but I bird everywhere I go. Um, I always feel like what distinguishes me from my committed colleagues and friends is that they travel places to see birds, and I tend to just take my time looking at birds wherever I go. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Well, and we believe, you know, that you can, you can be any kind of birder. Like there's no like yeah. specific. A, b- a backyard know, birder is still a birder. Yeah. You're, you're, you just, just... you're just not traveling for it. <laughs> yeah. My, my claim to fame has always been, I did my master's thesis in Costa Rica on the resplendent Quetzal. Um, so oh, that's I, cool. man, really? 
So I spent a couple of years uh, up in the cloud forest uh, doing a, a big breeding study on these birds. And, and I'll tell you what, I mean, just the amazing things. I think I almost maxed out the list of birds that were ever seen there and added a few to them just from sitting in a blind for eight hours a day watching a nest. Just so many birds fly through and above you. It was pretty remarkable and probably one of those experiences in my life that um, I have truly loved. But I was always, you know, my parents moved a few years ago from my childhood home and they found boxes up in the attic and were asking me if I wanted them. And when we went through them, I found my little tiny spiral notebooks where I had, you know, gone out when I was a kid and was writing down all the birds I saw. And so I, I have loved birds since I was a little kid and have been fascinated by them and have been one of those people who've been fortunate to make a career um, doing what I love, working on birds and um, and getting to do conservation and management and help guide priorities and, and work with partners to improve habitat and and do everything we can to save and protect birds. So it's been a it's been a great career so far. Yeah, you you can't not call yourself a birder if you spend all that time working with the resplendent quetzal and hanging out in Costa Rica. You're oh you're you're a birder. That's <laughs> that's a dream. Hey, I'll 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 own that I'll own that full for sure. Thanks. <laughs> So um, we, we asked you to talk, uh, talk with us a little bit here about uh, mass mortality, kind of turn, turn from talking about happy to all of a sudden now we're going to talk about mortality. But uh, that's kind of that's that's the world, Things, there's good and bad. But uh, I, we, we wanted to um, find out if you can give us like a pretty succinct or maybe super long, <laughs> either way, it doesn't matter to me, <laughs> explanation of what uh, a mass mortality event is and uh, how you can like identify it sure you know a mass mortality or a mass die-off whatever you want to call it is usually just characterized by you know a large number of birds that die off in a in a usually it's in a in a localized region or an area um you know typically it's when you find i would say two or more birds in the same location but i mean really a mass die-off is when we're talking you know tens to hundreds of birds um, even in the thousands. Um, if you want to keep it specific to birds, you know, that's what I would classify as a mass die-off or a mass mortality event is when you get hundreds to thousands of birds being found dead. Yeah, and so these these occur across all all taxa, right? They sure Fish do. and everything. Yeah, you know, there's always things in the news about mass die-offs of fish, um, mammals. You know, when I lived in Wyoming, I lived in Wyoming for 10 years and Seems like every couple of years you'd hear about mass die-offs of, of elk or deer or pronghorn antelope, those kind of things. And usually they were tied, you know, to some significant weather event or or something associated something associated with a weather event um, or a long duration of that kind of a thing. But yeah, it occurs in all taxa for sure. I mean, there's typically a mass die-off of insects every fall uh, after the first freeze, you know. Um, that doesn't yeah. get the attention, you know, that some of these other things do. <laughs> T 10 million beetles dead. <laughs> it's not, not, not as exciting as thousands of birds. Yeah. People don't get upset when a million houseflies die every, every fall, you know, <laughs> you know. So are they typically like isolated events, like, um, you know, in a certain area or could it span like, you know, a, a large area? Yeah. I mean, I would say it could be both. 
you know, the ones that I that I can recall from, you know, my time uh, working, you know, through grad school and, and with the Fish and Wildlife Service, a lot of those are really are more localized, um, not large mm-hmm. in geographic scope, but tend to be, you know, located in part of the state or across a couple of states. Okay, so with with those that are like larger, do those, I guess, I guess it doesn't really matter what, what size are, are these events we, you mentioned in the fall when house flies and insects and everything will die off and nobody cares about it. Cause it just happens every year. Um, how, how often are these mass mortality events, um, anthropogenic or naturally occurring or a combo or is, is no. there like a distinction? Do you know? I'll speak specifically to what I know with birds and, and the few mammal events that I've been, um, you know, either witnessed to or read in the news, you know, most of them, most of them are, are naturally occurring. I, I can't recall any large mass die off here in the U.S. that has been attributable, at least with birds, uh, to in, anything anthropogenic. Um, mm-hmm. Everything that I remember or have been, you know, like I said, witnessed to, uh, like the recent uh, die off of birds here in New Mexico and, and Arizona and, and Southern Colorado, um, have all been, you know, heavily correlated or linked to naturally occurring events. Okay. So, and I, and I know this. I guess, is, uh, and I know this is a good question because it's cause for concern because we all want to know: yeah. is there something we can do about it? Right? Is there something we could have exactly, done yeah. that would have made it different or would have changed the outcome? And and most of the time, it's not. You know, I think most of the time in our modern world and our conveniences with central heat and air and refrigeration and free, you know, microwaves <laughs> and ovens. I think we forget that without all those things, without um, all our creature comforts, you know, the animals that live around us are still living a very primitive lifestyle and, and are still very um, heavily impacted by simple, something simple as a weather event, you know, um, I, I think, you know, we as humans are so detached from that, that we we forget and sometimes we're shocked when these things occur. And and I think, you know, we're all shocked and saddened when these things happen. I mean, these are serious events and things, you know, that we, you know, we need to take to heart. But again, I think we're so we're so detached from it that we forget that this is just part of the natural world. Yeah, I, it's, I guess that's true. You have like uh, a, a swing of temperature of 60 degrees or something that ends up dropping. You're, you're in the 90s and you drop all the way down to the 40s overnight or something like here li- living in a house, your AC is running all day. And then as soon as that sw- switch is your heater kicks on and then you're you're sitting at 60 degrees inside all day long. So <laughs> exactly you're all good. But 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 no. yeah, you don't even notice the fact. Yeah. And I've studied birds for a long time, and and my PhD really focused on the physiology of hummingbirds and and mm-hmm. and birds in general. And one of the things that people just don't realize, I think, is that you know birds in general live on a really razor's edge. I I always called it of life and death. And um, you know birds are always trying to balance how much food, fat can they store versus when it impacts their flight ability, right? Their ability to evade a predator or fly through uh, trees and brush and and navigate. Um, And so they're not storing up a lot of energy. You know, they can't. 
you know, physiologically, they just can't store up enough and still function. Um, and so, you know, birds, you know, at best can typically store up two or three days worth of energy. You know, when we worked with hummingbirds, they typically, um, you know, we found they completely turned over their fat reserves in a day, you know. And so, um, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I always respect, especially now that I'm, you know, don't, I'm not an academic anymore and I, I really work, you know, in the field of conservation and management is I still pull that with me, just that knowledge of how hard it really is for these birds out there on the landscape. Yeah. I, I like, like you mentioned hummingbirds. I, I always, anytime anyone talks about that birds live, live at the edge, that's, that's always the first, uh, first group that comes to mind is the fact that they weigh an ounce and they, <laughs> Dr- they they drink a gallon a day and it's like okay a gallon weighs a heck of a lot more than an ounce <laughs> and they, they've got that turnover just going non-stop with them so it's it's uh pretty pretty spectacular to me that they can survive and they can deal with like even regular day-to-day changes in temperature and weather like i, I couldn't imagine only weighing an ounce and being able to handle that sort of well, and, situation you know that's why they have to go into torpor in the evenings just yeah. to get through that yeah, I'll tell you, before that weather event that came through New Mexico, we had 100 plus hummingbirds here at our house. And, you know, all four, mm-hmm. we had black chin, uh, broad tailed uh, calliope and rufus. And the day after that storm front came through, we had two. Um, so, oh I mean, they get up and they move, right? You know, they take advantage mm-hmm. of the strong winds that are typically in front of those storms. And, and they also recognize that, oh, wow, it's really cold and rainy. And um, I probably ought to get just the heck out of here. get the heck out of here. This is no longer an ideal location. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it's like these, like the hummingbirds, you mentioned you had 100 and down to two. Like, is that, uh, do you think most of them moved on? Or is this something that you, you have concern that, they didn't make it and they're somewhere in, in the bushes like, <laughs> not making it. <laughs> well, I, I think we would have found some of them if they, I mean, they typically roosted right around the house every night, but uh, okay. you know, I think we would have found some of them, it, you know, the optimist in me, like, want, want my, the optimist in me wants to believe they, they left and they're happy somewhere in central or South America already. <laughs> they're, they're, they're fat, fat and happy living, living down where it's warm again. Exactly. Yeah. So if I'm ever out in the field and so actually this, this happened to us once we were at a target in our area and we noticed just dead bumblebees like all over the place at that target. And I, you know, we were just walking along and I noticed like one here, one there, one there. And I was thinking like, wow, that is so weird that all these bumblebees died, you know, just happened to die. And um, a couple weeks later, there was this whole news report out that that Target had sprayed, tr- you know, ne- um, whatever. Poison- ne- neonics yeah. all, all over the trees and killed all the insects. So at what point, like when I start seeing a couple dead birds or a couple dead bees, should I like escalate the situation and like tell people about it? Yeah, you know, um, I would say that, you know, if you find one dead bird, I it's I don't know if it's cause for concern, um, but I think if you find two or three together, or or if in the course of a walk, say you find three, two or three dead birds, that that to me is is reason to potentially call 
um, you know, your state agency or your local Fish and Wildlife Service office and just report it. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that's okay. just always reason for caution. You know, to find one dead bird is not unusual. Maybe it hit a window, maybe it got hit by a car, maybe it just died of some sort of disease or just died of old age, you know? Um, yeah. But if you start finding multiples of two or more in the same place, I think that's where you should go. Mm, this is probably not too normal. Um, well, and out here on, so we live on the Oregon coast and um, at Haystack Rock in Cannon Beach, and we get a lot of um, nesting seabirds, you know, on the rock. And then, like, this time of year, or, well, earlier, like, maybe a month ago, ago <laughs> yeah, the babies all started to fledge. And, you know, some of them don't make it. And I know, like, a lot of visitors that come here are, like, they'll start panicking and be like, oh, my gosh, there's something wrong. Like, you know, the, you know, there's poison or something like that. Like, uh -huh. is that just... You know, there's got to be a natural um, amount of babies that just don't make it. Like, is that something you guys ever run into? Like, with people contacting you? And it's like, no, no, that's just what happens. Yeah, you know, it's it's a typical spring communication outreach we do every year. Uh, you know, putting out there, what do I do if I find a baby bird, you know? Um, mm -hmm. We just want, we as humans just want to help everything we can, especially if you're an animal lover. You just it's tough to see this baby bird on the ground seemingly alone struggling. You know, a lot of times the parents are continuing to feed them even though they're on the ground. Um, that is until you pick it up, put it in a box and take it somewhere. Um, you know, and so we always encourage folks to leave those birds where they are. Um, there's still a chance those birds will survive because the parents have so much invested in them. Um, they will continue to feed them and find them. Um, and so, you know, we always encourage folks to, you know, leave wildlife where you find it. Um, but, you know, here in our region, we have, we have issues with doves a lot. Uh, if you've ever seen a morning dove or a white winged dove nest, it typically is about three sticks precariously perched <laughs> yeah. across a fork in a branch. And how, how dove species still persist today, I really don't know. Um, <laughs> but they are prolific. Uh, and, yeah. and their nests succeed and it is remarkable, um, if you've ever seen a dove nest. So people often find eggs and baby doves a lot here. Um, and the other thing we have, uh, especially in South Texas is colonial, uh, nesting water birds really like those big mature trees in those big, beautiful neighborhoods in Texas. And, um, mm. and it can look like a war zone in some of those areas, um, with just, dead birds on the ground, you know, baby birds, you know, wandering around in yards. And it, it's sort of tough. Oh. It's, it's sort of tough to see. Um, but yeah. yeah, I think naturally there's just a high mortality rate associated with nesting and, you know, having studied birds for a long time, um, you know, birds tend to have really high uh, hatching rates. You know, birds are pretty good at incubating and hatching eggs, but getting it, getting that baby nestling to an adult is, is a really low uh, percentage. Typically less than 50% of those birds actually make it to adulthood. Um, wow. That's crazy. It is. It, when you start thinking about all the other sources of mortality in a bird's life, you know, we've had these conversations where it's amazing that birds exist at all. Um, 
when you start thinking about the high mortality rates during nesting, the high mortality rates they suffer migrating twice a year, um, the odds of just being surviving, um, not getting eaten by a sharp shinned or a cooper's hawk, you know, on any given day. Uh, there's a lot of things that want to eat birds, and birds just have incredibly high mortality rates in general. And so, you know, that in itself gives you hope that, you know, when you when you do encounter a large mass mortality event or mass die-off, that these birds are going to be just fine. All right. So I, I guess that, that brings up a question that I just thought of. The um, Or maybe I didn't just think of it, but it, but it reminded me. <laughs> um, the mass mortality or um, mass die-off, is there, are, are those the two general terms? Is there other terms that are more appropriate? That's the only two I know of. You know, they're probably okay. not, they're probably not super cuddly or PC, um, but those yeah. are the only two I know of. Yeah. Okay. All right. I just make, make sure we're using the right terminology. Maybe we should brainstorm. <laughs> maybe we should brainstorm and come up with something a little more cuddly. I don't know. <laughs> we'll work on that and get you some ideas. <laughs> so a, a group succumbing. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, um, you saying all that just makes me feel really lucky that we do have birds and, you know, that we're, we're fortunate to see them pretty regularly. Yeah, uh, generally, we see birds almost every day. Yeah, but <laughs> that just, that makes me feel happy, though. <laughs> you know, so, and um, it's amazing that birds are one of the largest um, means for the general public to connect to the outdoors and wildlife. I mean, the bird feeding business is huge hummingbird feeders mm -hmm. you know platform feeders house feeders you know uh, there's a lot of debate about whether we should be feeding birds like that you know supplementing um exposing them to you know one of the criticisms is you know when those birds are all collecting like that there's higher incidence of disease transmission and that kind of thing among birds but there's a little part of me that thinks you know just the amount of people who connect to nature through backyard birds is just remarkable. And, and I think it keeps us grounded a little bit, um, you know, that wildlife do still exist and, and that people can sit and just marvel at a, at a small yellow bird or a brown bird in their backyard or a bluebird, you know, that, that's the kind of stuff that keeps me going every day for sure. Well, and there's something to be said about that if you're if you're feeding the bird in your backyard, you get to you get to know the bird and you get a connection to nature and people tend to want to help vote for or conserve or donate to organizations that they like and so they can help help conservation just by the fact that they are now are now leaning more towards liking nature things just because they have this connection in their backyard with a cardinal or a sparrow on their back deck. Yeah, you know, I mean, I know I'm an exception to the rule because I work with birds and love birds and, and interact with birds a lot. But, um, you know, here at our house, uh, it's not officially spring until the first black-headed grosbeak shows up in the backyard. At that point, <laughs> we considered officially spring here at our house, you know. Um, you know, and so, you know, for me, I'm marking, the, I mark the seasons by when the birds arrive and when the birds leave you know, and, and so, yeah. you know, they, for me, they play a pretty key role, not just in my work life, but in my personal life as well. So um, what are some lasting impacts of die-offs uh, in, in the ecosystem? So, you know, there's less birds, but like, what implications are there? 
You know, it would just it would just depend on the magnitude of the die-off. Um, you know, if if a die-off was large enough that it impacted a significant percentage of a population of a certain species, um, yeah, it, it could have lasting you know effects. Assuming that 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 bird say played that key a role in ecosystem processes, you know. One of the things we all know is there's a huge diversity in birds. There's a lot of insectivores, granivores. I mean, there's such wide diversity of those birds and how they, how and where they forage within a system. You know, aerial foragers like flycatchers and swallows versus gleaners, you know, that are hopping through the trees, just kind of probing every nook and cranny, looking for something to eat, that kind of thing. And so, you know, you know when you're talking about ecosystem level effects, you know, it's really tough to quantify because if you lose one, if you lose, you know, some percentage of an insectivore population or of a species in an area, it's probably going to be quickly replaced by another one that's been competing with it in that same uh, part of the ecosystem anyways. Um, you know, so when you're talking about large level ecosystem processes, I don't know of any situation where you might see that, um, you know, from an ecosystem level processes, you know, but if you're talking about just purely looking at what impact does that have on a species persistence, um, you know, you know, you would have to potentially have sort of one of those mass mortality events occur to a species that was already um, at low numbers anyways, you know, like I could think of purple, mar purple martins or something else that, you know, is already declining, has been declining for a long time. And if you have some event that, you know, for some reason again. adversely affect them, you know, at some critical point, you know, when you have a whole bunch of them migrating or something like that, you know, because when I lived in Oklahoma, there was one fall where <clears throat> I was out, I was out birding. Um, and uh, uh, I, I saw over a million swallows in this giant tornado. I, it was the most amazing, probably still, wow. I'm, I'm telling you about it. 20 years later, it was such an amazing thing I'd ever seen, you know, with easily over a million uh, barn swallows and this giant tornado just circling in the sky, getting ready to migrate, right? All those birds that night were going to take to the skies and head south, you know, and so, you know, I could see if you had some mass mortality event when birds were collected at that volume and that number, yeah, you could have a, a population impact. Um, but the thing that, you know, I want to stress is these birds recover fast, you know, um, mm -hmm. those birds that do survive and return, um, will reproduce again and there'll be more food probably for their offspring. And, um, and so, and, and also birds are moving in from other places. The one thing we forget is how much movement there is in birds, right? And, you know, birds aren't static. They don't come here and then leave and then come here and then leave. Uh, you know, birds are constantly moving and exploring the landscape, you know, taking advantage of those resources where they are. You know, you know, it's yeah. one thing we've dealt with with doves. You know, one year you'll have an incredible number of morning and white-winged doves in one area. And then next year, because of changing rainfall patterns or whatever, there's no doves there at all. Um, but you go 100 miles to the east and they're all over there. And so, you know, birds are constantly moving and sort of filling those holes. Um, and just, I want to add that, you know, birds have been subjected to these mass mortality events for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. And so, um, 
you know, and they're still here and they're still doing well, uh, you know, and so, you know, these, these populations of birds seem to adapt to those, those events for sure. Um, but it is always cause for concern when those events do happen. Yeah, that's that's definitely interesting. That it's it's not it's not all doom and gloom when there's an event. Like it's there. It's it kind it kind of sucky. It a bunch a bunch of dead birds, but it's it's not the end of the world. And it's not they're they're likely to bounce back or. Well, and that's an opportunity for other species. Yeah. So you know, the next year you might get something different, which I mean, isn't the reason to go out and kill a bunch of birds or anything <laughs> like that, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to see these trends and and how everything changes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and there's 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 positive um die-offs too, like with like you were saying with insects, like you have a big insect die-off, now you have a whole bunch of food for a couple days for something. Yeah, I was make, I was making a little joke something. about houseflies, you know, cuz no one seems to love a housefly. Um yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, but like I mean, cicadas or something. Yeah, but you, oh, of course. I mean, those things come out; they're out for two weeks, and then that's a huge mass die-off, you know. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, but yeah. So you know, and we have migratory butterflies, you know, like painted ladies and monarchs, and you know, we have we'll get huge mass migrations of painted ladies here through our property. You know, we'll feeding on the flowers, and um, <laughs> you know, it's just again, you know. And, animals are subjected to the whims of nature and sometimes nature is not kind, um, you know, and, and, you know, tying that to the recent mass more mass die off event we had here in New Mexico. Um, you know, it was, we had this very fast, severe, high wind, you know, we had 80 mile per hour winds here in Albuquerque and, oh, man. Wow. um, you know, when those storms push out of the Arctic and through Canada and Montana and Wyoming and Colorado, there's a lot of birds, that, especially this time of the year, that are either preparing to migrate or in the act of migrating, and, and they are heavily impacted. You know, we had trees snapping up here because the drizzle was freezing um, on the trees, and you can only imagine how, you know, migrating swallows might be impacted by, you know, freezing drizzle. and and you know these birds then are forced to drop out of migration, and it just so happens that Arizona and New Mexico are currently suffering an extreme drought. And um, you know a lot of the birds they did find during the, during and after that event were primarily insectivores, and so you can imagine there was very little to eat. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and and one thing that's really interesting about migratory birds that I've always loved is. Um, they, right before they migrate, they grow their breast muscles huge, and it's all water storage, and hmm. that is their only source of water during their migration, um, when they're in the air. That's insane. And so when they hit the ground, they'll typically have very depleted breast muscles, you know, almost to the point that you can feel their keel um, in, their, in their breast, and... Um, Often the first thing migratory birds need when they drop out and hit the ground is water. Um, and so you can imagine a lot of these birds that were found here were in the desert. And, um, and right now there's not a lot of bugs and there's not a lot of water. And of course you couple that with um, temperatures that are much colder than normal. And, and I think you, you get sort of a multiple series of whammies that do not really 
um, lend themselves to a positive experience for a migratory bird for sure. Yeah, especially when they're living on that on that edge, like you were talking about the, the razor's edge of life, and you just kick them three times and <laughs> cold and <laughs> cold yeah. and no food and no water. And it's like, yeah. oh, now, now go ahead and survive. Yeah. <laughs> And you know, and I was I I was on two weeks of vacation during that whole event. I was actually up in the mountains camping um, before, during, and after that storm. And it was amazing. Before that storm, the trees were just full of warblers and nuthatches and brown creepers. And I mean, it was just remarkable to be sitting in the woods and see the just the sheer numbers of birds that were migrating through in front of that storm. And then, of course. Up where we were, you know, we got almost 12 inches of snow and bitter cold for two days. Um, and then storm front moved through and it was 70 degrees the third day. The snow all melted. Birds were everywhere again, you know. And wow. so and so it seems like if you were, you know, I can't, I don't know everything, right? And so I'm only, you know, making the best um guess at what went on and why these birds died but you know mm -hmm. i can only imagine a lot of these birds were weren't ready for migration and a storm because of the extreme temperatures and winds pushed them to migrate before they were ready which potentially caused them to drop out of migration when they just ran out of water and energy reserves um or you could have had a situation where birds were ready to migrate because of the extreme winds and temperatures and you know precipitation conditions they were forced to drop out again and they they dropped that into an area they where they weren't going to find much food and water and so um you know it was it was very unfortunate and sad to see the pictures and to hear what people were finding but it does seem like it was very very strongly correlated with that event um and you know i know they did find some birds prior to the storm but you know, one of the things that I, I tend to fall back on was that storm. Um, you know, it took a couple of days for that storm to get here. And so you could have had quite a few birds that were already getting up and moving in front of that. So, yeah, they, they were, they were mo moving slightly early because they were getting hit by it up north and then it pushed yeah. them and then they just couldn't keep going. Yeah. But again, that's, you know, our hypothesis on what occurred. And yeah. And, you know, always being careful not to tie it to what's going on right now um outside of you know those things especially because mm -hmm. you know we know from history and from previous occurrences that weather events are are typically you know a cause for these mass mortality events yeah so there's not much we can do in the short term as birders about the weather yeah you know i always tell people you know especially in this country you know in new mexico you know, in the desert, you know, if you're going to provide one thing for birds, provide them clean, pure water, you know, and, okay. and here yeah. at my house, you know, we keep our, our water dishes, you know, clean, we bleach them pretty periodically. But man, I'll tell you, the first thing I do every morning is walk out with a pitcher of water and make sure those dishes are full. And, and it's the first thing the birds hit in the morning at my house. And it's the last thing they hit before they go back to the trees in the evening. And, um, you know, and so, I I love to see people feeding birds and providing water for birds and you know especially during the migration period is so critical um, mm -hmm. that these birds have access to food and water. 
That's something easy that I think a lot of people yeah. can do that have a great impact. And most people oh. want to do it anyways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so many people think like they need food, they need food, and that you don't even consider that, you know, they're animals water. that drink water. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there have been afternoons, even just this week, where, you know, there's 20 birds lined up on the edge of the, the, the bird, the dish I have out there just drinking, you know, mm -hmm. as much as they wow. possibly can. Because um, it is dry. Um, yeah. So is there anything else about uh, die-offs and mass, mass mortality events or anything that uh, you think people need to know about? Yeah. You know, I would just kind of reiterate some of the things we've talked about, you know, um, in, you know, reiterating some of the things we just talked about was that um, these mass mortality events are often um, tied to, you know, extreme weather events or, you know, something tied to weather, you know, whether it be extreme heat, extreme cold, you know, big fronts pushing through, um, and not to be alarmed um, that's the end of the world and, and to know that, you know, often these storms and these sort of events only impact a, a small segment of the population. Even though you may be seeing a lot of birds, um, you know, most of these populations number in the millions of birds. And so, um, you know, to see a few hundred or a thousand, you know, of a bunch of different species probably has a small and very short, if any, effect on that population as a whole. Um, I think I would definitely say that if you find more than two or three birds dead at one time in one place, you should report it. Um, the easiest thing, the easiest way to report it is to a local game warden or a state wildlife office, or if you know how to contact the Fish and Wildlife Service, contact those folks. Um, all those can typically be found with a pretty simple web search. Um, and, you know, a lot of times uh, the agencies will come pick up those birds and send them to the USGS uh, lab that does a lot of our uh, avian health testing. Um, I know that's what they did with a lot of the birds that they found in this particular event, um, just to just to rule out any other causes, um, which is always something yeah. you want to do. Um, and you know, finally, you know, just if you love birds and you like to see birds, um, give them food, give them water, and you know, like it's kind of like, was it feel the dreams, build it, and they will come? Um, <laughs> you know, I. You know, we bought our house here. It had been vacant for two years, and I was, I put out food and water, and for two weeks, I didn't see a single bird, and I was getting discouraged, and I was like, I can't believe, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, birds started showing up, and I, and I swear, birds have a language, and they talk to each other, because I've never, I, you know, I've never seen, all of a sudden, we had just hordes of birds coming in, you know, and, um, and so, you know, if you love birds, you know, one of the things you can do is just support, you know, local nonprofits, you know, like Audubon Society and, and Bird Conservancy, the Rockies are, you know, a couple that I work with a lot, you know, that have a passion for birds and, um, uh, you know, and I'll always plug, you know, the duck stamp. Everybody thinks hunters, only hunters buy duck stamps, but it turns out most people don't know the money generated from duck stamp sales is what we use to purchase lands to set aside for protection. Mm -hmm. A lot of our national wildlife refuges have been purchased with the proceeds from duck stamp funds. Um, all of that money goes towards avian conservation, not just waterfowl conservation, 
it goes towards avian conservation. And so, you know, these stamps are $25 and it's amazing how much money is generated, you know, that benefits uh, conservation of not just birds, but all species that benefit from those lands that are purchased and managed um, for conservation. And so I always like to put that, push that plug as a migratory bird <laughs> person in this Fish and Wildlife Service, because I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, even though it's called the duck stamp, it, it really goes a long ways for conservation. And, and um, yeah, just get out there, you know, get plugged into local birding groups and, and conservation groups and find out how you can help. But simplest thing is to hang a feeder and put a dish of water out and, and keep it clean um, and, uh, and just sit back and just enjoy nature. Awesome. Well, thank you, Scott, for sitting down with us and taking some time out of your day to talk all about mass mortality and to, to show off your <laughs> splendid Quetzal uh, history. Seriously. <laughs> That's such a fun topic, mass mortality, that is. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time and, and, and uh, I appreciate you, you know, inviting me to talk with you all today. So we want to give a huge shout out and thanks to Scott for taking some time out of his busy schedule to talk with us a bit about mass mortality and help dispel some of the misinformation about it. And also huge thank you to the folks at Fish, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for helping us coordinate this whole thing. Um, we kind of uh, contacted them last minute, you know, to, to really get this together. And we yeah. super appreciate that they worked with us um, to get it out in time for this and episode. If you've ever tried to email a government um, agency anywhere. I feel like you always, it's always like a super slow, like you email them and like two weeks later they get back to you or four or five days. But no, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, they were on the ball. Like we, we emailed and within an hour we had an email back like, seriously, like, so what do you want? What is it? And it was just like, it, it was real quick. So I'm, I'm very, very pleased with my experience dealing with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, outreach. I, I think it was the outreach coordinator. It was the um, public relations. The public relations officer. Yeah. yeah so, so you guys are awesome. Thank yeah. you so much. And we did want to mention one more, one more thing before we signed off and everyone can go about their days and everything. Um, <laughs> or maybe you're already going about your day listening to this. You're not going about your day I, right now. I don't know what people are doing while they're listening people, to like, us. You know people like turn us on and then like mute it. <laughs> or go to sleep or yeah. maybe you'll wake up and you'll hear me saying something. I don't know. But uh, They're like, ah, yes, it's finally over. <laughs> that, was, that was a nice restful nap listening to Hannah Eric talk. So um, one, one thing I wanted to mention is that the worldwide consensus tells us that human activities had le have led to a huge increase in concentrations of certain greenhouse gases over the past hundred or so years. And we, we see it everywhere. Melting glaciers, heat waves, rising seas, flowers blooming earlier, lakes freezing later, migratory birds leaving to head south um, later. So all of these things um, are happening all around the world, and there's no geographic region that's immune. Um, and this rise in global temperature and change in all of this stuff is in part causing extreme weather events, sea temperature rise, and other changes. And many of these changes are occurring at an accelerated rate. And and we and we all know that weather is not human caused. And I mean it's in some movies, like if Dwayne the Rock Johnson's in it, it's probably a human caused weather oh, event. Oh, Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs. Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs. There there are human caused Cloudy with the Chance of Meatballs too. Yeah, there there are human caused weather events, I guess, with foods delicious weather events. but 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 human humans don't cause in in the real world outside of movies hum, humans don't cause weather or change it or anything like that as far as we know but 
we do contribute to climate change, which climate change leads to these more extreme weather events and in turn can be an indirect cause of some of these, some if not many of these mass mortality events. So that was that was something I wanted to add that we didn't really get a chance to discuss during the during the interview with Scott. So, And if you're yeah. interested in learning more about that, uh, about climate change and all that, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, Service has a great website that we will add into the show notes so you can read more. Yeah. Um, so thank you all for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to us. If you'd like to connect with us on the socials, please follow us at Hannah Goes Birding and Eric Goes Birding Hannah on with Instagram. Eric with a K. On our Facebook page, Hannah and Eric Go Birding. Our email address is Hannah and Eric Go Birding at gmail.com. Our Twitter is at WeGoBirding. And you can also check out our website, which is www.gobirdingpodcast.com. Tell us what you think and help share the love of birding with everyone.